This is the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast with Wayne Scott and Gary Taylor. On this episode, we explore the story of manual gearboxes in Aston Martin. Do they have a future? Discover more about the story of Aston Martin, amht.org.uk. Hello and welcome to episode four of the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. I'm Wayne Scott and also we have... Gary Taylor, hello. Hey, Gary. Uh, here we are, already episode four, the year's speeding by, and mainly because there's lots of good Aston Martin stuff to talk about. There certainly is. Aston Martin are keeping us busy, aren't they, Wayne? They are indeed. We'll talk about what's been happening in motorsport a bit later on in this episode. As is normal for me, the last weekend in January is spent glued to the TV throughout the night watching the Rolex Daytona 24 hours. It's a weird race, a race of weird weather as well, one that mixes sort of <laughs> winter and summer all in one race. Brilliant stuff, though, and Aston Martin did really well. We'll talk about that a little bit later on in this episode. Uh, but first, we have a brand new Aston Martin to talk about, and it is the DBX 707. It is the SUV, of course, that Aston Martin have been selling for some time. It's had a complete revamp and refresh. And it's phenomenally popular, this car, isn't it? Um, you know, there was an argument that Aston Martin, as we've touched on before on this podcast, shouldn't be making SUVs, but the market disagreed. And people have been buying this in their droves. They have been. Should they be making this sort of thing? Well, you know, the last financial year, from what I understand, you know, I think about 54% of all Aston Martin sold last year were the DBX. It's a great, it's a, it's working for them. It really is working for them. And I think we're going to see more variations of the car. So they've got this great car. It is selling. People want it. I think, as I said previously, more Aston, more days. Uh, people are using these. And a, and a, uh, I think it was Aston Martin Bristol said to me uh, when I spoke to him recently, they said they're having their cars back. These DBXs are coming back with some phenomenal mileages on them. People are using these cars. So, hey, you know, they're buying the cars and they are using them. They're not garage queens by any stretch. Well, the DBX V8 had amazing performance statistics. I'll run you through the top three. 181 miles an hour top speed. 542 PS. That's like new power. It's not. They don't do brake horsepower now, anymore. I, I, I've looked into that. It's a metric measure of horsepower, and it's here's my German Führerstag. Ah, very good. <laughs> that's that's for you. Right? For you in awe of my German. <laughs> I am absolutely in awe. I'm very impressed with that. Actually, <laughs> it's been about an hour's rehearsal to say that beforehand. So. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's what it is, and it was only 542 <laughs> on the DBX V8. I say only, that's massive whopping power for an SUV, and it would take you to 62 miles an hour in just four and a half seconds. Compare that to the DBX 707, and they're up to just shy of 200 miles an hour now. 193 is the top speed they're claiming. 707 PS on the power, and a 0-62 time of 3.3 seconds. I mean, that's just ridiculously quick for an SUV, isn't it? It, it is. We, we were speaking just before the podcast of, of say, how cars, uh, the engineers, the technology has moved on. We were talking about some old Range Rovers. And as you say, we have a, a well, it's not a bit shy. It's a heavy car, as most SUVs are. But we have this DBX 707, which I found out in old money is 697 bhp. Um 
I can see 707B a bit more catchy in marketing terms, so that's probably why they've used it. But I say 0 to 62 and 3.3, that is mind-boggling. And Aston Martin uh, have said that they're not just bolting more horsepower into the car to make it go faster and to be unruly. I think most most manufacturers can just make the thing bigger and you know go faster, but you've got to be able to drive it. And I think they have championed the fact that this... Yes, this DBX has has more power. I think what's it say here? It's it's a hundred and fifty five brake horsepower increase over the regular DBX. Can you believe that? Um, but it can handle it. You can still enjoy driving the car. It's still swift. It's not a, it's not a brute. You're not going to get into it and think, oh my god, what have I got myself into here? So yeah, hats off to Aston Martin for bringing this together. I think there was some talk of you know, the faster DBX being the V12. And I think we all like the idea of a V12 and a DBX, but I think, as they've said, that would just totally change the dynamic of the DBX. It's a, it's a bigger engine, heavier engine, and um, they've gone for an upgrade, up, updated uh, V8. So this is what we have, and my goodness, it's um, it's phenomenal. I can't wait to hear it, how it sounds, but you make the point there, of course, that it has to be a daily driver. This is a sports utility vehicle, and it has to be usable day to day. So it has been quite a a feat of engineering, really, to make that much power pack into a vehicle that needs to take the kids on the school run and go to the supermarket and the DIY shop and all that kind of everyday stuff that they want you to use it for and yet it's packing that kind of performance figures that normally would be a fire-breathing monster absolutely i mean you know i think we've all perhaps driven cars a bit too uh not too uh gentle around town and bimbling around they just want to get unleashed but you know from what i understand that this car uh it's going to be uh you know still a little pussycat around town for the school run uh, to your favourite local supermarket and all the rest of it, it's not going to be a, it's not going to be hard work. But if you want to take it out for a spin for a track day, I think the uh, launch control systems and all of this that they bolted on. It's also got a new um, nine-speed wet clutch gearbox as well, so just to handle this. So it's a very usable car and it's going to be great to look at. They've done a subtle change on the front of it. I think it's the biggest grille of an Aston Martin that's ever been fitted on the DBX, but they've subtly redesigned it and, it, and the grille just seems to, to hang from above. It's got a, a lovely splitter underneath it. So it, it, it they've done... Um, uh, the, the design team have done a lovely job on this car. They certainly haven't spoiled it by making it look like a, you know, putting spoilers and wings all over it. It does look uh, very much like a, a gentle person's Aston Martin. Yeah, absolutely. Looks a lot more aggressive, but has lost none of the style and finesse that we know and love of Aston Martin. And it's fantastic to see a car company who are using power and performance and speed to sell a car again. When they launched it, the website for the launch was newseatofpower.com. Yes. I like it. I'm, I'm all up for this stuff. I think you're right. And I think it's it's not just Aston Martin. I think it's the, it's the car manufacturers. It's the last hurrah for the uh, combustion engines, if you like, and they're, they're making the most of it. Ladies and gentlemen, just... suck it in. Enjoy it. <laughs> Take it all in. Soak this up. Having said that, we've got a V12 Vantage, which we, we're not going to talk about, but so we, it's not the end of the, the V12 and power. We've got the V12 Vantage at some point, uh, announced in December. Still no sign or, or uh, any more information on it, but hopefully we're still going to have power to come. 
Absolutely. In the great tradition of Aston Martin, and it is of tradition, we talk next because, Gary, you've been back behind the scenes at the Aston Martin Heritage Trust to meet, well, Rob Smith, the Aston Martin Heritage Trust chairman, to find out about his work and his views on the future of the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. Trust Talk. We take you behind the scenes at the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. Well, I'm delighted uh, today that uh, I'm at the Aston Martin Heritage Trust to be with the chairman of the Board of Trustees, Rob Smith. Now, we're going to talk about the Aston Martin Heritage Trust, uh, its history, why it was formed, etc. But before we go on to that, Robert, I want to talk about your latest acquisition. Absolutely. Well, it's a sort of Aston Martin. Uh, Back in the 1980s, Aston Martin spun off their engineering department as Aston Martin Tickford Limited. And the idea was to sell their automotive services elsewhere in the industry. And their very first customer was a company called Fraser Cars Limited. And they made 26 luxury metros called the Fraser Tickford Metro. So I've just bought one of those that's been in bits for 20 years to restore. You're doing it yourself, aren't you? I'm doing as much of it as I possibly can myself. Um, the challenge, believe it or not, with something like a Metro is getting the bits. Unlike an Aston Martin, where 90-odd percent of them survive, almost no Metro survive from the 2.8 million built. So it's really hard to get some parts. So I'm uh, trying to find all the bits I need first. Well, I think this car's going to be very fascinating. Uh, I think it's probably the pre-Signet. You, would you suggest it's the pre-Signet uh, a small car from Aston Martin? Exactly, it's exactly the same model. They wanted to take a city car and give it the luxury Aston Martin touch. So that's what they set out to do. Thanks, Rob. Well, looking forward to covering the Fraser and the Signet in future episodes. But before we go on to that, I want to talk to you about the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. Now, some people get confused between the Aston Martin Owners Club and the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. So can you just give us a, a brief overview as to why it was formed and when it was formed? So the the Aston Martin Heritage Trust was formed in 1998 by the Owners Club. In those days, there was great risk of um, legal proceedings against the club if something went wrong, and they felt that they needed to set up a charitable trust to protect what was then the uh, the 1934 Aston Martin Ulster that they owned, and um, and a small but interesting collection of of artefacts. So they formed the trust as an educational charity to protect those assets um, in case something went horribly wrong. Fortunately, it never did. Um, since then, the trust has been building up the, the collection um, in so many different ways. You mentioned the educational side of things because that is very important to the trust, isn't it? It's not just a collection of our cars and archive. No, it's very important because it's actually... Um, in our constitution, the trust was set up to do two things. Firstly, to record and collect absolutely everything to do with Aston Martin's history. And then secondly, to share that information with anybody who was interested and wanted to know more. So the education side of things is how we share all the information and the knowledge we're gaining here. What's the relationship it has today with the Owners Club? Uh, We have um, friends of the trust and every Aston Martin Owners Club member is automatically a friend of the trust and the club uh, transfers some funds to us for each one of those members. So we have a a good relationship with the club. We share our headquarters at the moment in Drayton St. Leonard um, and we support the club in all the activities they do, such as the big Concours events each year. Important source of the archive material and the cars is actually Aston Martin Lagonda itself, isn't it? 
yes, it is. And we, and we enjoy a great relationship with Aston Martin. We are their official archive. We even have our own cupboard in uh, the corner, under the stairs in, in the factory at Gaydon. Um, and we encourage them to throw absolutely nothing away. They should put it in the cupboard and then it comes to us. And then we can decide which things that they're trying to throw away should form part of the permanent archive. That cupboard sounds fascinating. You must love going there to pick things up. Absolutely, because you never quite know what they've they've found next. Um, so we get all sorts of things. Like um, recently, they refurbished the VIP um, configuration suite. So all of the leather samples and wheels and seats that were in there all came to us for for storage for perpetuity. I I believe we received a uh, a car or a cutaway fairly recently, just a few weeks ago. Well, I'll say a few weeks ago. Well, that was probably back in January, February. What what was that? Yeah, that was in January. Uh, so yes, the latest um, vehicle that we've received from Aston Martin is the Rapidi cutaway. So that was built uh, and toured the motor shows of the world to show the electric Rapide that they were building. And it has all the um, electric motors and all the housings where the batteries would have been. Um, And the idea was that they all sat where the normal transmission would have been. Um, And so we can use that cutaway to explain electric vehicles and how Aston Martin are getting started in uh, that part of the market. Well, that's going to be fascinating because, you know, electric vehicles are all the way forward and I think Aston Martin have announced themselves recently that they're going certainly from 2030 fully electric and the Rapid E is probably the the first version of to do that car. Um, it was very much a, a, a test bed. Um, it enabled them to explore all sorts of areas not just with the car but but how did you store the batteries? What sort of training did people need? Um, how did you protect um, the workforce when they were working on these things because they run at 800 volts the system so you don't want to stick your fingers in the wrong uh, in the wrong socket um, unfortunately the car didn't make it to production because the legislation was changing faster than Aston Martin could develop the car but it's very much their first toe in the water and the beginnings of, of as you say we will see a lot more electric Astons to come. I think people may associate the Heritage Trust rightly or wrongly with cars. How many how many cars do you have in the collection now? Well, we currently have 27 cars. Um, some of those are on permanent loan from Aston Martin Lagonda um, and the Nimrod from Viscountess Down. But the rest of the cars are, are in our own collection. Um, 27 in total, ranging from A3, the oldest Aston Martin to survive, right up to, to the Rapid E cutaway, which uh, is, is, to all intents and purposes, brand new. I think the cutaways do draw a lot of interest because you can actually, well... Sounds like a nothing to say, but you can actually see inside the car the construction of the vehicles, and they are a fascinating item, aren't they? They are, and we find that people who come to the museum find them really interesting. It's not that difficult to see a, a complete Aston Martin on the roads these days, but to see what's underneath the skin and the technology uh, that goes into the, an Aston Martin is really interesting. And we've got cutaways that show the aluminium, um, tub, the, the, the chassis if you like we've got others which are drivetrain cutaways which show cutaway engines and gearboxes and back axles uh, we've got others like the um, Vanquish cutaway which shows all the carbon fibre bodywork and gosh they're huge pieces of carbon fibre and that you would never know that from looking at the finished car It's not just cars is it? We, we have a lot of other stuff Oh we have an awful lot of other stuff It, it runs to hundreds of thousands of items 
So in terms of physical artefacts, we've got a big trophy cabinet, including things like the 1959 um, World Sports Car Championship Winners Trophy um, and other trophies from the 1950s that were all given to us by the Brown family. We've got cabinets showing um, items from the Bamford and Martin days, including a silver tea service that was won by Lionel Martin in his cycling days. We've got cabinets showing um, a big scale model collection, which enables us to demonstrate all sorts of cars that we couldn't possibly hope to own, um, much as we'd like to. We've got cabinets which show trim items. We've got others that show engineering items and the tools the engineers would have used in the day to make these cars. How do you store these items? Well, the, the paper archive um, is very difficult to look after because it includes photographs and film, and film, of course, is a very unstable medium. Um, we've also got loads of engineering drawings too. So they're all stored in our, in our archive. Um, we, we spend a small fortune on all the right packaging to look after these things. They all have to be in acid-free boxes and acid-free wallets. Um, and we, yeah, we spend a small fortune on that sort of thing. Um, we also employ professional conservators where that's appropriate to look after some of the items we've been given. With this amazing collection of cars and archive material, we are struggling for space aren't we we're absolutely full we've got cars in storage all over the place um and our archive area is is congested to say the least um so we're looking at plans to to fund a um and create a new aston martin heritage center uh, in order to be able to move the archive and the museum um and do everything on a much bigger scale do you have a model like perhaps like the british motor museum or, or ferrari museum do you have a model in mind that you ultimately like to achieve I say you achieve, I mean the, the trust achieved, the trustees. Um, we've been to look at a lot of the, the competition, if you like, including the Ferrari and Lamborghini museums, who are perhaps the, the closest to us in, um, in scope. But one of the things we want to do particularly is to surround each car in the collection with the ephemera that goes with it. We think an awful lot of the importance in the Aston Martin story is the people that were involved, the people who built the cars, the people who owned the company, the people who buy the cars. It isn't just a case of putting a car on a pedestal and saying, isn't that beautiful? It's what were the social circumstances around the building and selling of that car as well. So we want to really tell the whole story, not just produce a, an art gallery of beautiful cars. Aston Martin has a tremendous history of interesting characters and people behind this, and I think it would be great to be able to celebrate those, those, those people. Rob, thank you very much for your time, and no doubt we'll speak again soon. Thank you. My pleasure. You're listening to the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Discover more about the story of Aston Martin, the cars, the people, the history, with the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. You're always welcome to visit us at our museum in Oxfordshire. So find out more via amht.org.uk. Well, we've talked a lot about him here on the podcast over the past four episodes. It was good to finally hear from Rob Smith himself about his chairmanship of the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. And it is amazing. All of the people that sit on the board at the Trust and do all of that great work are all volunteers, aren't they, Gary? They are. Uh, they're all volunteers. Uh, they all spend their time. Uh, each of us got a, got a role. Um, I say Rob is the chairman. 
I'm the treasurer and I do these podcasts as well. Uh, we have Tim, uh, who is the registrar, and he does amazing things on getting cars re-registered. Uh, a lot of dating certificates, and we hope to get Tim on the on the podcast soon to talk us through uh, how he gets a car uh, reauthorised, if you like, with the DVLA. And we have John Warden, who does the educational side things of the trust and plenty of other trustees as well. And we have uh, two trustees, uh, Marek Reitman and Mark Gortlett from AML, who represent uh, the AML's point of view and a couple from the AMRC as well. So we've, we all uh, all volunteers, we all contribute it and we've got some great plans for the trust. I understand it's having a bit of a makeover at the moment. Yes, it is. We're having a, a re- tidy up, I think, effectively. Uh, we've been at the, the barn now for about 20 years and we are getting so much stuff, which is so many, uh, such great news. But it's getting crammed. It's getting busy. And with the COVID restrictions, if you like, at the beginning of the year, and it's relatively quiet for people not going to the museum, we took it as an opportunity to uh, just close the museum for uh, a couple of months. It's going to reopen again on the February the 23rd or thereabouts. And we have moved everything from upstairs, all the archive uh, material, downstairs and we've given a place a good clean and tidy up and refresh and we're slowly moving it all back and and we're going to have some new cars uh downstairs as well we uh, we have some of the cars in secure outbuildings and we do like to rotate these around so once the museum's open again we've got some new cars downstairs and a a nice smell of pledge within the museum <laughs> well sounds like an ideal opportunity then to go and see the new look aston martin heritage trust museum you can find out all the details as ever at amht.org.uk best day out ever so go and have a look at the website find out all the details to so come and see us and the new look collection back to the news on motorsport it was at the end of january one of the big ticket races of course of the sports car season it is one of the big ones it is the daytona 24-hour race sponsored by rolex of course all part of the imsa championship over there in america and aston martin have had their first podium of the modern era and uh, it went to local roughly local magnus racing team um racing in gtd and they came second and they have three american drivers john potter andy lally spencer pumpley and our own brit good old johnny adam guiding that team i get the feeling because those gtd cars must have a pro driver in the lineup and they managed p2 so uh, the first podium position at the rolex 24 hours at daytona took place of course started on the january the 30th a great result for aston martin there and there were several other aston martins in the field as well down in eighth place was the next highest with uh, roman de anglis uh, ian james tom gamble and of course our own brit darren turner who has such a massive history racing aston martins they came in at eighth position in the rolex 24 hours that was daytona for 2022 brilliant result for aston martin all round and even more exciting stuff from aston martin racing because in the last few days gary we've seen the brand new formula one car for the 2022 season we have and it's known as the amr 22 it's launched into a new era for formula one i think the whole rule book has been ripped up uh, it's going to be Aston Martin's second year, and as I say, the rule book's going to be ripped up, not just for Aston Martin, but for all the teams. The car's going to look uh, very uh, significantly different. And I think from the outside, 
the the biggest visual changes is going to be the uh, the wheels and the ground effect uh, styling of the cars. We're now on 18-inch wheels they, they, and low-profile tyres. Uh, so they're going to look uh, very special on a car. And the car was launched with alongside uh, Sebastian Vettel and Lance Stroll. And Lance Stroll gave the introduction to it. And it's part of their their second year into a five-year plan, five-year plan to, to win the championship. Their expectations for this year are relatively, I would say, low. Um, I say it's a brand new car, and once you start mucking around with the aero, they're moving more to ground effect type of cars. It changes everything. The tyres have changed, the ground effects have changed, the whole thing, the, the wings have changed, the, the rear wing it appears to be much smaller. So it's going to be a massive learning curve. And I think in, during the introduction, they've said this car is going to be changing a lot through the year. Some teams are going to get it right from the off and some teams are going to perhaps struggle. We don't know where Aston Martin is going to be. Nobody knows where they're going to be, uh, any of the teams. So it's going to be a very exciting year ahead. I think they would like to see themselves on the podium a few times. Outright wins, I, I'm, I'm not so sure. I don't think they're, I don't think they're looking towards that. But... They where did they finish last year? I think they finished um, uh, seventh out of ten ten manufacturers or something like that. So I think we're they're certainly looking for an improvement uh, for next year, and I think we'd like to see a few podiums. But it's uh, the the Silverstone Complex where these these cars are ultimately going to be built is is coming on nicely. I think that's opening next year. So let's wait and see what what's going to happen. It's uh, Bahrain is next month. The car's ready. What is encouraged, Wayne, is that Aston Martin actually showed the car that they're going to be racing. I think Red Bull, uh, a few days earlier, they, they showed a car. Well, it wasn't the car that's going to appear on the track in Bahrain. I think they they were being very secretive about the you know some of the aerodynamics and the pods and things. So it was all hidden stuff, very spy, uh, secret stuff. But I think Aston Martin said, here it is, and I think, the next day or the day after, there was pictures of AMR22 out on the track at Silverstone off for of testing. So top marks from Aston Martin there, showing us the car. And here it is. And off we go. Exciting year ahead for Formula One. And I think as long as there's consistency in the rules, <laughs> as we referred to last year, uh, I think we should have an exciting year ahead. And it's historically significant this year for Aston Martin because it marks the centenary, 100 years since Aston Martin first raced in a Grand Prix race. It was, of course, on the 15th of July 1922 in Strasbourg, France. It was the French Grand Prix that year, and Aston Martins appeared for the very first time, driven by Louis Jabrowski um, and also a Brit by the name of Clive Gallup. Both cars retired. They unfortunately had engine problems. But it was the start of a long association with motorsport, of course, that we, uh, we have with Aston Martin to this day. So really nice that on the you know, anniversary, the centenary of Aston Martin first entering Grand Prix races, that they unveil a brand new car for us. It's quite exciting, isn't it? It is. And that's the impetus for Tian. We mentioned this last time, the Aston Martin Heritage Festival on the 14th of August. It's going to celebrate the 100 years of Grand Prix racing for, uh, for Aston Martin, the centenary. Uh, so 
you can book now. Tickets are still available on the Aston Martin Heritage uh, website. Go to there and you'll find a link and book your tickets. It's going to be an amazing event. We will speak more in detail on uh, as we get nearer the time, but that's the reason behind it. Well, we'll share more details on that event as they emerge over coming podcasts here on the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. But now we're going to find out all about gearboxes as Gary goes and finds out all about the cogs and the stuff that goes round the black magic that is Aston Martin gearboxes next. Immerse yourself in the rich heritage of Aston Martin. The cars, the people, the history. The Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Well, I'm delighted that uh, today I'm at HWM in Walton-on-Thames. And today I'm with uh, Guy Jenner, who is the Chief Executive Officer. Guy, thank you very much for joining our podcast. Thanks, Gary, and welcome to HWM. This place has a, a particular emotion for me because back when I was 17 years old, which was probably more years than I choose to remember, <laughs> I passed my driving test on the 4th of July. I always remember that because it was American Independence Day. Mm-hmm. I was 17 years old. And I had a Mini 850, 1960, Morris Mini. Thank you very much. Yeah. And where was, I, where was I going to go with that? And I think one or two days later, my drive from Yateley in Hampshire was to this very place in my little eight Mini 850 to look at Aston Martins because I think one day that's going to happen. And I came here and it was a marvellous... I think you had a, a joint uh, Aston Martin British Leyland dealership at the time wasn't it yeah you did and I had a marvellous time I think I saw what was called a V8 saloon there and I think I sneaked out a brochure I think I managed to charm my way for a brochure so uh, so thank you very much it was uh, you've got to look after the children the young people haven't you they are the future absolutely yeah you are one of the the world's most established uh, dealerships for Aston Martin can you give us some some background Kai well that's right so so officially we're we're the oldest Aston Martin dealership in the world um, I think what's probably more accurate is we're the longest surviving Aston Martin dealership in the world because, as we know, um, Aston Martin have had some turbulent times over the years, and and somehow we've we've managed to survive um, through. But we we started off as a constructor of Grand Prix cars, and our two founders, uh, George Abacassis uh, and um, John Heath, um, were, uh, were were usually into their racing, but George in particular was an Aston Martin works race driver and how we become to became to be a, an Aston Martin dealership was in 1950 George um, actually won his class in Le Mans in an Aston Martin and that was the way Aston Martin said well you better sell them for us as well which we duly did so 1951 we became an Aston Martin dealer and never looked back and I, I think that was sealed by the fact that George ended up dating the daughter of David Brown right who he married, so um, you know it, it was then in the family, and and we we we, uh, we, we never looked back. Um, sadly, uh, Heath lost his life in the Mill Mill. Racing was a dangerous uh, place back then. That was 1956, and so Mike Harting, who was the global sales manager for Aston Martin up the road at Feltham, came to the business um, to be George's partner, and uh, that was 1958. And Mike sadly passed away. Uh, in March, but he never left after that, and so the business has sort of had this consistent ownership, and we're we're still a privately owned family business today. I feel very comfortable that you're in a position to talk about the subject we are going to be talking about for this podcast, which is manual gearboxes on an Aston Martin. 
I hope so. So I, I think I'm probably a little biased because I love a manual gearbox. You know, so this is this is a great subject to talk about. And um, you know, we've we've made some wonderful cars with manual gearboxes. But what's probably triggered um, this podcast for us today is is the fact that as of 2022 model year, we will no longer be able to supply a manual gearbox, um, which is currently in vantage. So that will be the end of the manual gearbox in our core model lineup. It's not possible to, to, to order one unless something special happened via the queue department. So, you know, no, nothing's impossible, but it will not be a standard offering currently and, and, and for as far as I can see in the future. Well, that's interesting because I am like you, Guy. I mean, I, I, I like a gearbox. It might be a generational thing, I don't know. But if I may just quote, and I do a name check here to Henry Catchpole from Evo magazine. He said... Manual gearbox, they are the vinyl to the music Spotify, the log fire to the electric radiator, and the mechanical instead of the quartz watch. Despite being a lover of manual gearboxes, it's difficult to argue that they are better than an automatic gearbox in any measurable way. Nowadays. Nowadays, with a modern gearbox. So that that has certainly changed across the period. Um, So a good example is... It, we, today we're going to talk about what we might be described as modern era Aston Martin. So cars that were built from Gaydon onwards, that were built on the VH platform. And we'll come to what VH platform means. Um, but if you take the series before Gaydon era, DB7, well, at that point, if you were to choose an automatic over a manual gearbox, actually you were choosing a car of a lower performance level. So um, if you were to take the original DB7 i6 with a supercharged engine in a manual it would do 0-60 in 5.7 seconds and it would do 165 miles an hour if you bought the auto it would do 0-60 in 6.9 seconds and it was um, given a top speed of 160 miles an hour and that was even more extreme at the end of DB7 so DB7 GT um, beautiful car, last of the DB7s um, a manual DB7 GT had 14 more brake horsepower, it had a top speed of 184 miles an hour if you chose the auto, it had a top speed of 165 um, so that, that's quite a marked difference so I think I think in that era you were making a choice of the higher performance car first of all yeah so so that there was one attraction to manuals i think also for me why do i love manuals the one thing i disagree with first of all is i hear people say i like a manual because i've got greater control i don't believe that because actually with modern autos or indeed dual clutch transmissions you've got the ability to override the gearbox and control the car what i do feel is first of all um primarily it's fun um, you've got greater involvement in the drive and for me there's a huge amount of satisfaction in terms of um, manually executing a beautiful gear shift that's fast and smooth and in particular coming down the gearbox if you heel and toe and rev match as you come back down again just nailing those changes perfectly there's just something about the satisfaction of doing it yourself um, and I think there's probably times of a manual gearbox that if you get stuck in a traffic jam um, I can think of oh, absolutely, yeah. Goodwood Revival 
one of my colleagues it took, took them two hours to get into Goodwood uh, the other day well you know th- those are probably circumstances where you're you're, you're, you're perhaps not so in love with a manual gearbox but generally it's it's just that that involvement factor that I think is is the biggest attraction do you think that's what that is what prompted the previous management team, uh, Andy Palmer, uh, under under his under his guidance, when he said, as long as he, he is there and under his watch, there will always be a a manual gearbox option within within the Aston Martin range, because he probably felt the the clients at the time, the customers at that time, were still wanting that that engagement with the cars, which maybe not so much in Lamborghini or Ferrari. Yeah, I, I I think that that's probably true. I think it comes from a place of passion more than anything else. And you know, in all my time working with Aston Martin, I've always felt that as a manufacturer, they've been full of people who love cars and love driving. And inevitably, if you love cars and driving, there's a good chance you're probably quite like a manual gearbox. Um, so I, I think it, it it came from a place of, of passion. Um, and of course, frankly, the world of the internet. If you were to believe everything you read on there, everybody wants a manual. I, I believe you got the actual quote from Andy Palmer. I do, I do. Do you want to, to read that out? So this was Feb 2017, and he said, I've already made a commitment that I want to be the last manufacturer in the world to That's offer it. manual sports cars, and I want to honour that commitment. It, 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 came from, it came from a good place, and frankly, subsequently, manual gearbox was delivered in Vantage. So, yes. you know, it, it was executed upon. We'll come to what's happened Yes, in the life of manual gearbox of advantage, but um, yeah, definitely the you know the the honourable intention was there. But uh, as we all know, um, we have a new management team. Aston Martin has a new management team with uh, Tobias Moa's uh, head in this, and he has quite clearly said the manual gearbox is is over. Yes. So, do you think that we are? It's a generational thing. We're looking ahead because I, I did see some. I think it was someone on the internet saying the manual gearbox will actually be the, the ultimate anti-theft device because <laughs> some, somebody will look at a try to break into a car, see it's got a stick and a third pedal, and they won't have a clue what to do with it. So, if we are looking ahead, a decade or two ahead, is the management team correct? Do you think saying, well, you know, manual gearboxes, we can understand a romance, we can understand the engagement but current gearboxes has moved on so much from should we say like you mentioned the db7 mm, mm-hmm. that in reality and from a business case point of view they're no longer required yeah i i, I think i think it's probably as much to do with the advancement of the auto gearbox as yeah. it is to do with the manual and so I, I think there's a few things for me roads are getting busier um so that's that's certainly an incentive um I think autos, first of all, you have the ability to put more gear ratios into an auto gearbox. So if you look at a modern Aston Martin, it's got an eight-speed ZF box. Well, you wouldn't want to be changing eight Well, as a manual, you'd be forever stirring. You would, yeah. It would be a constant job. So I think that enables a uh, an automatic to, one, have faster acceleration because you can have uh, closely stacked ratios lower down the box, but equally, you can have much higher overdrive ratios. So... The fuel economy you get at cruising is superb. The shift speeds are super fast, um, and actually they are far more efficient, i.e. there's less transmission losses now. So more of the power from the engine is getting to the rear wheels. That was always an issue historically. So if for every reason, auto boxes are getting better. Um, 
I think there's pressure on CO2 emissions as well. Well, absolutely, because I, I understand the more gears you have, the more the, the engine can be optimised to reduce consumption and, and emissions. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's probably true even of, of those of us that love manuals. When we drive our manuals, there's probably the odd time where we wish we had an automatic and there's probably times where we're very, very grateful for having manual gearboxes. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. So we mentioned the DB7. Yes. And I think that was probably the, and I know it's pre-VH, but um, and you, you, you can refer to that in a moment. But the the DB7, they offered this uh, Touchtronic. And unfortunately, at the time, I, I had a manual DB7 and I thoroughly loved it. Mm. Uh, and I did try a a DB7 Volante with a Touchtronic at Goodwood. Yeah. Um, my experience with that, I think, we'll gloss over uh, and we'll move on to another another day. Uh, I still bear the scars. Uh, I think Les Gobel will uh, would um, would chuckle at this, but uh, we'll move on. So, I need to say, I didn't get on too well with the Touchtronic. Yeah. But um, but then it was a generational shift, wasn't there? We went from DB7 to DB9, and I think the gearbox had moved on tremendously since then, didn't it? I agree. Yeah. So, so first of all, we we refer to VH platform, which is vertical horizontal platform. Actually, the VH stands for. This was a platform in the, in the days of Ford, where vertical it could go up and down the Aston Martin range, and horizontally, in theory, it could go across other Ford-owned manufacturers. Um, and it, it, it was a fantastic platform that was flexible, very very strong. Um, and was therefore used throughout the Aston range. So, so when we say VH, that, that, that's what we're talking about. And yeah, DB9 was the first full VH product uh, launched in 2004. Now, DB9 was, was auto to begin with. It was a ZF no, was it, auto. Was it, was it yeah. So you, you couldn't get manual for the, for the early cars. Um, and it was the buttons on the dashboard, wasn't it? That's it, yeah. And they worked really well. So um, it, 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 yeah, it was a Graziano um, uh, manual when it became a manual, but it was a ZF auto. And, and we are still at the point where it was pretty close on outright performance figures. So we're at a point where the manual was still just a bit quicker than the auto against the clock. And we'll talk about how they feel um, to drive in a moment. Um, the important thing about an Aston setup typically is they have a transaxle setup. So they have the gearbox mounted at the back, yeah. the rear axle. Um, and the really important thing for Aston is Typically, we don't build the lightest cars, but what we do um, build is we build a car that is a a very sporty GT, and it's all about managing the weight. So that's why they they mount the gearbox at the back. So it's neat packaging, but the weight distribution is really critical. So transaxle gearbox. Um, Interestingly, the manual gearbox had lower gearing than the automatic. So that, that, that was a different feel on the road. But still, it was at a point where, um, yeah, 0.1 seconds faster for a manual, not to 60. Um, it, it was slightly quicker against against the clock. So the manual gearbox was, was introduced in 2005, um, and it ended up being dropped for 2013 model year. So it did eight, eight years of the total 12. Well, that's not too shabby, years. is it? It's not too shabby. Um, but, I mean, there were over over 16,000 DB9s made and in total 622 were manual no so it's a super yeah I'm mean, less than 5% um, I didn't realise it was that really small numbers really? 385 were coupe um, 237 were Volante but actually you know for big GT cars I think 
in modern era, generally they suit an automatic, generally. But when you drive a manual DB9, wow, I mean, it's, it's, it's a real gem of a car. Um, so because the gear, first of all, gear is lower, so you notice it's punchier straight away. It makes more use of its engine and its power. Um, it's got a very light flywheel, so it revs up quickly, which takes some getting used to it, actually, because as you're trying to balance it to pull away on the clutch and so on, it's very easy to over-rev the engine because it responds so quickly. So I can imagine in the wrong hands it can eat clutches. Um, <laughs> it seems to be a common Aston uh, uh, fear. It, it, yeah, definitely, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. So it's something you've got to be wary of. But, um, wow, I mean, it just, it, it, for me, it transformed the car. It, it, it made it really, really lively. Um, the gearbox was always slightly bulky, so a little awkward and a little heavy, but the clutch, um, really quite nice and light, relative to, you know, I always think whenever you get into a V12 manual, you think it's gonna be incredibly yes, hard work. Yes. But actually, they're, they are, relative to what they are, they're, 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 they're pretty sensible to drive, but I think a common theme with all of the manual Astons is they are not instantly flattering, you have to get used to them. So, you know, one of the things I wonder is, over the years, are these cars that, one, it would probably be pretty difficult in back in the day when DB9s were being sold, if you wanted to go and test drive a DB9 manual, well, you'd have a challenge because, frankly, I would imagine pretty much every dealer always had an automatic. Absolutely, yeah. And not a manual. So, so, so would you buy it on faith? You'd probably have to buy it on faith, yeah. Yeah. Um, and frankly, even if you test drove the car, it, it, it's my feeling that a common theme we'll have with all of these cars, maybe with the exception of DBS and Vita Advantage, a lot of them you need to drive for quite a while to get used to them and get into them. DB9 is a great example of that. I think if you drove it for 20 minutes, you'd probably come back and think, I'm not sure. If you drove it for three days, you'd probably fall in love with it. Oh, that's interesting. That is, that is very interesting. Because the engagement with cars usually happens within the first few miles, doesn't it, really, generally yeah. speaking? Definitely. Yeah. Um, but you, you can see why, probably of all the models we're going to discuss, D, a manual gearbox is probably the least likely fit for the DB9. It was always the Grand Tour and the central pillar of the Aston range. Um, Vantage was sportier, DBS was sportier, DB9 was sitting in the middle. Still a very sporty GT, but absolutely a GT. But still a GT. Yeah. So yeah, I can see why, and I was amazed by those production figures, why it was such a niche area. Can you remember the first time you saw a DBS? I can remember it vividly, and... Um, it was probably a James Bond film. Oh, was it James Bond film? Yeah, okay, so, so for me, I can remember seeing a Casino Royale um, DBS manual sitting there on the tarmac, and I just thought it was the most beautifully proportioned car. And the fact that it had a manual gearbox in it was even more attractive to me. You know. So the DBS came out of a manual? Yeah, so interestingly, manual only to begin with. Right. So as, as DBS was launched um, until 2009 model year, so it was launched in, um, it was introduced 2007, first cars were built 2008, and really it was late, late eight, early 2009 that the auto came out. Um, so it had this six-speed manual. So, do, sorry, do, do you feel that the auto came through demand? Yeah, I do, definitely. And I, I suspect commercially Aston Martin felt that they were ignoring a big opportunity with auto transmission. So um, 
they were both offered concurrently. So you, it, there was a period of time where you could buy both an auto and a manual. Big thing that I always remember, opening the door of a DBS, had a beautiful interior, mm. but it had this colossal gear lever that was machined from solid aluminium. Oh, yes, I remember. It said like a Cyberman's head or something yeah. like that. <laughs> what a showpiece. And um, Pure aluminium, wasn't it? Or yeah, something? machined from solid. So the plus sides. So I think it made it... It gave the gearbox a, a bit of assistance with leverage. So it actually felt quite light in use. But on a cold day, I've never known anything colder. <laughs> and then the, the opposite, on a hot day, it felt like oh. it was just going to melt your skin. So... Uh, uh, why they had never sold as an accessory a one-hand left-handed glove for changing gear? <laughs> I don't know. I think Aston missed a trick there, but um, it, it, I still love it. It's it's part of the, the experience of a manual DBS that that beautiful gear lever um, and combined with even more power than DB9. So it had 510 brake horsepower, less weight. Yes. Um, it was a really lively car to drive. Um, and I think the same thing happened that when Auto was introduced in 2009, model year. It actually just took the edge of the performance in auto form. Um, so I, I think manual always felt a bit livelier, but there were a few options that came in 2009 model year. Automatic, B&O sound system became standard, and there was a two plus two seating option. And in the history of Aston's, those plus two seats have always been useless, but they've always been one of those mandatory options that everybody specs. Absolutely. Just the way it goes. So um, those options came up. But in, in total, um, 984 DBS were built with a manual gearbox. Um, total production run was 3,400. The last cars were built in 2011. And essentially what happened was, as soon as we started offering automatic, a large proportion of the buyers were ordering autos. Overnight, it just changed everything. That everybody switched to auto. That's interesting, isn't it? That's 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 very interesting. Okay. So in, in total production numbers as a split on DBS, um, there were nine hundred and eighty four manual coupes, fifteen hundred and fifty two auto coupes by comparison. Um, here's a really rare model, the manual volante, so it was available in manual, the volante. That is a rare car. 45 were made. You do lose track sometimes because uh, Aston Martin are not shy in spinning off various um, yes. uh, derivatives of their models, are they? No. Because we had the Virage as well between the DBS and the DB9 as well, That's didn't right. we? Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Um, uh, whilst, so 45 manual Volantes versus 803 auto Volantes. So that gives you an idea of the split. Um, now, one of the rarest combos is to have a later car so once auto had been made available in 2009 model year if you ordered a 2 plus 2 seat configuration that had B&O but was a manual that's a rare car so that's 114 of those were made so they're, they're really sought after too and I'm seeing um, the, the, the DBSs are getting quite punchy in their prices now aren't they? they are yeah I mean, it, 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 so not only is it a beautiful car I think it, it is. it's wonderfully proportioned it's been been in a Bond film twice over that's great yeah um, and and actually naturally aspirated V12s with a manual gearbox that's that's a configuration that's quite rare in the marketplace that's a good point um, a naturally aspirated V12 and a yeah. manual what's not to like yeah what's not to like indeed so they're a wonderful car and, and it, what then subsequently came was pretty much that configuration 
but squeezed into the smaller body of the Vantage. And again, so what's not to like from there? You know, that's well, I do remember. I think it was the uh, Design Museum opening. I can't remember when. You, you may, you may have two thousand and December eleventh of December two thousand and seven. Two thousand and seven. There or thereabouts. But it was a blue Mako blue baby Aston. Yes. V twelve engine. Yes. Now, what's not to like there? It was incredible. So it was called the RS, and I think Doctor Bears. Um, Revealed the car, yeah, as part of the design studio and hinted that it, it might go into production. <laughs> um, well, sure enough, March 2008 in Geneva, it went into production. It, it, it was revealed and, and confirmed as going into production. And, yeah, I mean, this was an incredible car. So they dropped the RS tag, so it was simply known as V12 Vantage. And we'll talk a little bit, a bit about the car, but I can remember being back at the dealership just taking deposits from people as they sort of got off the Geneva stand. Um, yeah, again, what, what's not to like? So it it had that same DBS configuration of the 510 brake horsepower, naturally aspirated V12, but squeezed into the smaller body of the Vantage, which was really tightly packaged. I mean, it was a real achievement to get it in there. Um, it had the same manual gearbox, that same gear lever as well. So, um, and again, you know, all the better for it even the same brake, so it was one of the fastest decelerating cars you could buy. Um, I mean, it, was, it just had an instant impact, and that combined with a shorter wheelbase, fast steering rack, I mean, it was, it was a really lively car. And um, a, a, a few things about it. I mean, interestingly, it wasn't that much lighter than DBS. Really? Yeah, so you'd imagine it'd be a lot lighter. It, it's probably in the region of 50 kilograms, something like that. It's not much at all, is it? Not that's, that's a, yeah, there's a, there's a gearbox weight or something. Yeah. 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 But to drive the two... Um, so it, it was launched as a manual, was it? Launched the manual, and all the way through the V12 Vantage's life, before it gained the S version, it was manual only. Never an auto. I don't think, I don't think there was... I don't know whether it was room or, or, or raciness, but they, they never, never, never offered an auto, right. auto configuration. Um, but it was 140 millimetres shorter than DPS in terms of wheelbase. So, in terms of the way they drove, they were just really lively, really punchy. So, on totally the different character. Yeah, very edgy. So it had fixed rate dampers rather than the, the DPS had adapt, adaptive damping and a long wheelbase. So you, you generally you got a better ride on a, on a DPS. Whilst um, Feature Advantage had a lively ride. It was firmer, edgier, and it was also supplied on dry-biased Pirelli P0 courses. And, I mean, if there was even the merest hint of moisture in the air, the car was, <laughs> um, yeah, all over the place. Actually, that's a bit unfair to say it was all over the place. It, it could break traction very easily, and you could rotate um, in a controlled fashion, but you needed to bring your A-game. Um, but that, for me, that was part of the attraction of the car. You know, it was a car that demanded respect and um, there's never a dull day driving a V12 Vantage. It scared a few people to the point yeah. where there were a few cars that we were sold back to us because I think a few customers felt, you know what, this is this is just a bit much day to day. Yeah. Um, but for me, that's even you know that adds even more allure to the car. You know that that's. But but you're absolutely right. It's it, it's maximum engagement. Um, but it, you know, if, if for a chunk of these cars, they're not daily drivers. They're owned as a second or a third or a fourth car and if you want something to get out of the garage when you're in the mood 
to just go and drive and just purely concentrate on your driving what a piece of kit to own. I can imagine you, you said earlier that uh, after, uh, after after a few hours I think it was the DB9 or the DB uh, they, they, they didn't like the manual gearbox but after a longer period of time they did I do remember when I think I mentioned to you uh, when we met uh, a while back before the podcast yeah that uh uh, many years ago, I was invited to Aston Martin to chest drive uh, or take out for the Aston Martin Owners Club magazine a, v- a V12 Vantage there. Yeah. It wasn't a manual, yeah. uh, so probably one of the later generation. And I wafted up there in a Jaguar. It was an SJR. It was just it was lovely, you know, yeah. four litre supercharged. Great car. Anyway, they threw me the key or the emotional control unit. Emotional control unit, That's yes. It. Yep. They yep. threw that at me. Off you go, Gary. And that, you know, to go jump from a Jaguar XJR to that was was sensational. And I went down on the M40, still finding my way around, and I saw something called a sport button. Yeah. What does that do, Gary? Well, it did a lot. All hell and fury. And this, I mean, as you say, this car was just a lot was happening. And I can imagine people jumping into it. Oh, this looks rather nice, and coming back. I wouldn't say scared, but love it, but too much. Now, having said that, I had it for the weekend and I got used to it. But yes. my goodness, you had to respect that car. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, funnily enough, just around town and low-speed manoeuvres, I actually found V2 Vantage and DBS really quite easy cars to drive. You know, mm. Gearbox was light, clutch was light, um, the throttle and, and just the way that the car revved was all actually quite manageable. And, of course, the one thing you get with a V12 is just that enormous flexibility so frankly, gear choice, you know, it, it didn't require you to be ultra precise on what gear you chose. Third gear would take you from just above walking pace to license losing pace. You know, you, it, it, it's it's a very flexible unit. Um, it's when you want to drive one a bit quicker that, that, that you really need to um, need to, to, to be respectful at the same time. So V12 Vantage, we, we were at a, an era where I think at the end of the S, the world kind of recognised quite clearly that naturally aspirated engines were at the end of their life manual gearboxes were becoming rarer and and certainly we found at dealership level there was an element of the market or customer base that thought I'm never going to get a chance to buy another car like this but it still felt to me that with V12 Vantage S it was criminally overlooked um, because it was such a great car and yeah I mean it it didn't sell in the numbers it deserved to so give you a feel for numbers. So V12 RGS, um, the Sport Shift version, in total 1,017 were sold. By comparison, a quarter of that, 260, were sold in manual form. Roadster, just 91 manuals were sold versus 272 S's with Sport Shift. The AMR was a, um, a limited car, but the split was 57 manual coupes. 18 sport shifts, 23 manual roasters, and six sport shift roasters. Even though the writing was on the wall for, for a manual gearbox like that, I think the market is starting to wake up to it now. But Do you, you think? Know, yeah. But people, you know, often we don't realise we're going to miss something until it's gone. I was just going to mention what it was like to drive a V12 RTS because we've spoken about the spikiness okay, of yeah. V12. Actually, V12S is a a slightly more rounded product so it had adaptive damping 
so that calmed the ride down it's, a bit. It smoothed it out, did it? It, made, yeah. it, made, it took the rough edges of it. Well, it, it did. I, there's a phrase that Aston use which um, resonates throughout their range. They've always worked harder and harder on breadth of ability, i.e. it's creating a car that when you want to drive in a committed fashion, you can tighten it all up and it becomes that absolute sharp weapon that you want. But equally, you can soften it all off and it's a nice GT car to make make progress in. And, and V12 Vantage S did that better than V12. Um, it had an extra gear, so it had taller gearing, so better cruising. Um, strong torque, so even from just 1,000 RPM, it had 70 newton meters more torque than the non-S. So you could feel that straight away. And it had a 177 muffler, so it had a different noise. And, well, since you mentioned 177, that's never going to be a bad thing, is it? Well, no, no, <laughs> I didn't know that, okay. So over and above the gearbox, it, it, it's a really compelling combo, but, but for me, yeah, they're, they're both wonderful, wonderful cars for different reasons. They're just, I guess my point being is they've got distinctly different characters, but they're both, both wonderful cars and both savage when you drive them really hard. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned a 177 connection there. Yeah. And I think any connection with 177 is never a bad thing. Mm. I think that's a very much a lust after Aston, but obviously uh, the 177 led into Project Victor, didn't it? It did. So if we talk more V12 before we um, we move to the V8 Vantage, there have been two notable manual specials over over the last few years. The first one, actually, I would I would refer to might be V600. So V600 yeah. started life, actually started life at HWM, and it was a customer that um, commissioned the project. And it actually started with that, that customer owning a V12 Vantage S, loving it, and perhaps wanting to make the ultimate V12 Vantage, or maybe the ultimate Vantage, full stop. Um, something that could be kept long-term, because it was very apparent then that it was the end of an era for, for, for that model and there were a number of things that influenced it uh, GT12 for example GT12 was made with a 600 brake horsepower V12 engine but it was always a sport shift gearbox um, the customer wanted something distinctly analogue to go with that NA engine so it had the 7 speed manual the highest out power outputs, wide body and there's so much to the V600 uh, in terms of Changes to the body and interior that you perhaps wouldn't know. And what's the six hundred refer to? Uh, uh, it's code name. Yeah. So it had a code name called. Uh, it was Project Dreadnought. Project Dreadnought, which is a brilliant name. Um, so it was always known internally as the Dreadnought. <laughs> and again, that that was led led by the customer. It was a brilliant name, and and it, it, frankly, the naming of V six hundred was probably the last thing ha- that happened with the project. So it wasn't a car that was inspired by the previous V six hundred. We just created this what we think is just a wonderful analogue driver's car that's kind of, it represents everything that that, 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 that Aston Martin typically delivers, i.e. it's menacing but beautiful but under the radar and it's driver focused yet it's got this incredibly bespoke um, tailored interior and, and exterior. It, it, it's um, a wonderful car. So we got to the end of this, this project, it was called the Dreadnought. It was a 600 brake horsepower Vantage and as you'll know, 
with Aston's its name's beginning with V and so we thought where do we go with this it's still Vantage because it's it's um, a love letter to Vantage really mm, mm. and and so V600 seemed like a good match with a 600 brake horsepower output so that, that's how it came about actually I've read many times in magazines that it was inspired by the V600 it, it definitely wasn't right yeah. okay so that was a, that was a great um, car and, and one of my favourites and um yeah, it's all about manual gearboxes and, and how many gears in that, in that gearbox? Seven speed. Seven it a, speed. It was actually the same seven speed as the V12 Vantage S. Right. Um, and yeah, great gears. It, 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 again, it looks it, it looks very different inside. Um, but but yeah, be- beautiful beautiful car. Ultra low volume. There were seven coupes and seven roasters made. I didn't realise that they did that many. Actually, I, I always thought it was just one or two off. But as I say, I looked in your showroom, uh, and it, they are they are beautiful looking cars. Aggressive but understated. It def- under the radar, as you say. Yeah, very much under the radar. Um, it was originally going to be a one of one, and Aston Martin asked if they could could build more because they they recognised that there was definitely mm. an element mm. of, of customers who would really appreciate an analog car like that, and so that that's why it grew to a slightly larger project. But nevertheless, ultra rare, um, and built for people who just love driving. Um, which yeah, then leads us to the other special project the Victor Mm. and the Victor was a car that was inspired by the Muncher and for those of you that um, are not familiar with the Muncher in fact Gary you you mentioned the Muncher is one of your your favourites oh it's it's, it's utterly my favourite Aston Martin I think it's probably I remember 1977 comes to mind yep long before the internet long before everything and it was at Le Mans mm. and the only way I can keep up to date with what was going on at Le Mans was watching it on BBC Teletext you know just just thing and then I, the next week I'll grab Motoring News or, or motor, you know, motor News it was called and not as, as in Motorsport News now and Autosport and just I wanted to see how Muncher did because it just looked it looked like an Aston Martin but a mad one but what a fantastic looking car! It was—I I just loved it. And it was—it's—it's it's a schoolboy poster car. It was just pure excess. But I would say under the radar, no. but, it, but certainly not that. But you saw it as an Aston Martin with with on steroids and had attitude there, and I just loved it. So when Victor came along, wow! Absolutely, yeah. I, I, and it's funny—I think on track different rules in terms of Aston's um, aesthetic supply but you're right I, I, I mean it feels as if even to call it an Aston on steroids isn't enough it's just it was just wild wasn't it it was wild and the colour scheme the, the red white and blue it, it just I think it just ticked all the boxes guy I think it was patriotic it was an Aston Martin it was at Le Mans it was trying to give those pesky foreigners a scene to yeah you know um it was marvellous it was marvellous and uh, it was probably a bit of an underdog as well which again (laughs) absolutely and it had those incredible gold wheels as well and I'm just overall as a look it it, it was incredible yeah just a remarkable thing and that that's what inspired the the Victor project and what what was found out was that there was a 177 chassis lying around at Gaydon as you do as you do um, that was a usable chassis and the carbon had all been checked and there was a customer who wanted to build a car that 
um, was inspired by the Muncher. Generally, the only other thing we haven't mentioned about the Muncher is the reason why it was called the Muncher was because it used to eat brakes. Absolutely. Um, which wasn't something that I think we wanted to faithfully recreate with the Victor. <laughs> uh, so it's got carbon ceramics that, that, that are pretty robust. But, but there we go. That, that was more a weight and issue. I, 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 I think it was it the next generation Muncher when it had twin turbos? Uh, yes. And I think it. Uh, I, I, I think it was doing about two miles to the gallon You're or something. Right. Yeah. It, it couldn't even complete a circuit. It became even more extreme, though. Didn't more it? extreme, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so originally, Victor was going to be in those in that colour scheme, and was a red, white, and blue. Yeah, with gold wheels. Fantastic. It, and and this shape, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's such a beautiful shape, the Victor. It's brutish. I could never describe it as pretty. It's handsome and brutish, but it again encapsulates everything an Aston should be with this big oversized engine in this case it's, it's a V12 that's putting out over 800 brake horsepower and if I'm one it was, was it was it Victor was was uh, initiated by you or a customer of yours that's right yeah so it, it actually yeah it started it started um, was started by a customer of ours and, and we were involved in the project quite heavily it ended up being um, taken over by a customer from Belgium in the end but it, I mean, it was an incredible experience. So again, manual gearbox, yeah. And the same trick was played as we spoke about the V12 Vantage S with the seven-speed sport shift, taking off the ro- robotized elements, making it a manual. Well, of course, 177 was a sport shift gearbox, and what happened was the robotized element was taken off to leave it as a, a core manual. Um, so suddenly, Victor had elements of uh, the Vulcan running uh, uh, suspension and so on. Yes. Yes. It had uh, yeah, this beautiful naturally aspirated V12, big boots, comfortable seats. You know, it, it's a car that you could track, take it long distance, just everything you'd hope an Aston to be. So, V8 engines. V8 Vantage. V8 Vantage, yeah, indeed. Current so, generation. Current gener- generation. So, V8 Vantage was, was not far behind DV9. So, DV9 was launched in 2004, and it was a year later that we saw V8 Vantage. Um, so again, it was on the same platform, but a shorter platform. And this probably, of all of the cars, understandably, was the most successful manual gearbox. And I, for me, straight away, it's the sport. It was the sportiest model. It's a sports car. Um, so I think that went with with manual gearboxes. It was originally only a manual that was available with with Vantage. So Sport Shift came later in the life it, its life, but it was just a beautiful combination of a, a naturally aspirated V8, a conventional six-speed manual, so no, nothing complicated about no, the gearbox, you no. can kind of get on with it, other than the fact that we were saying earlier that sometimes it it um, it might have been a little bit mechanical and heavy, but actually drive it for a little while and you forget that, I think. Um, it, it's just like if you've, ever, if you've ever driven a manual with a heavy clutch and then you get out of it and drive something with a light clutch, you forget what a mm. light clutch feels like you almost you know mm. stomp on the light clutch yes yeah, that's, yeah. that's a very good point you think well this, this is the norm yeah you adjust um, but it, it's just a wonderful combination and particularly with a V8 engine what you get with Vantage is it, it was a front mid-engine car so there was more room to play with because they don't have a, you know, unlike the V12 which was shoehorned in there the V8 engine was was mounted much further back so the, the balance of a V8 is just beautiful it's a great car now there were two versions of Sportshift available in, uh, in Vantage, um, six-speed and a seven-speed. And when it first came out, the Sportshift, the big selling point was that 
gear changes were up to three times faster than a manual transmission. So the early sport shifts were able to change in less than 200 milliseconds. So bear in mind progress at the end of the V12 Arms Jess's life that came down to 70 milliseconds. Um, it's all relative because actually nobody nobody complains about manual gearbox change speeds, do they? You just don't hear no, that conversation. No, no, no. I wish, just wish it could be faster. Yeah, yeah. You never, yeah. never hear that. No, because no, unfortunately that involves blaming the driver, doesn't it? That's why. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I mean, equipped with a sport shift, the Vantage ret- retained low polar moment of inertia, an excellent balance, as they described it. Um, so it was negligible weight increase over manual. It still had that wonderful weight distribution 49.51 weight distribution and top speed this time was unchanged it was 175 miles an hour for the early cars and the 0 to 60 times a little faster so it was interesting now we're starting to get to get to a point where it evens things up a little bit where when sport shift was finally introduced to the range we're not at a point where there was a massive compromise in performance actually they were pretty level. The interesting thing about Sport Shift was actually we, we still found that manuals um, outsold automatic, certainly, or Sport Shifts, I shouldn't call it an automatic, Sport Shift um, in the 4.3 variant, probably one because it orig- originally was available only in manual, but also it, t- it just took a bit of getting used to with the Sport Shift gearbox. So. Going back to the conversation we had earlier, if you drove a sport shift up the road and you didn't get your shift right and your throttle interaction, you'd probably come back and think, well, that's just a horrible jerky gearbox. Um, so first 4.3s, 6,408 manuals were sold versus 1,746 sport shift. Okay. So still far more manuals. Once we got to 4.7, non-S, it changed. 1,794 manuals were sold, 3,420 sport shifts were sold. And once we get to Roadster, we always found that sport shift was more popular than manual. So 4.3s, 727 manuals were sold versus 2,293 sport shift. And at 4.7, that was 507 manuals versus 1,816. but there was that same journey as the V12 once the S model was introduced. So the S model was introduced with suspension upgrades, more power, interior upgrades, and being the sports model, the sporty model, and in line with Aston's thinking at that point, it was sport shift only. Seven-speed sport shift gearbox was introduced, and it, again, it was the best best version of sport shift. But it's interesting that Aston eventually introduced Vantage S with a manual gearbox. So it came back to the market much the same time as the V12 manual return for the S. Um, So, yeah, in the end, similar balance. The rarest of manuals for um, for Vantage is a V8S Roadster, of which there was only 63 made for the world. Really? That's that's very very low, isn't it? V8 Vantage S. Well, that's a lovely car. Yes, it's a six-speed. Interestingly, so they didn't they didn't go seven-speed sport shift and then take the robotized element off. It was just the straightforward six-speed manual. Do you think the roadsters just tend to offer a more relaxed style of driving? If I can use that, exactly. So that. hence, 
the non-manual seems to suit it better. Yes. Yes, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. That people, for, for the purpose that the person wants to drive it. Yep, agreed. Yeah, pe- people, I think generally the buyers consider a larger proportion of their driving might be touring stroke cruising, and that might be just slightly different with the coupes. So, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And not forgetting, we, we got GT8. GT8 with its full aero kit, so that's 119 of those were manual, 36 were sport shift. So, again, that. The interesting thing about that is that's in theory a sort of almost track orientated car, yet far more people chose the manual. Mm. Um, and then finally, V8 AMR, 63 coupes, 74 as uh, manual, 74 as sport shift, so pretty pretty balanced. Um, 12 roadster manuals and 51 roadster sport shift. It's just a lovely thing to drive as a manual gearbox of the advantage. The other interesting thing is this is from an era of cars where actually bring out a manual today and you almost need to over gear it to bring down CO2 and fuel consumption. Right. And that just takes the edge of that sort you, of you, instant performance. Do you think it's the CO2 that's been the final nail in the coffin? I think that I think it is, isn't it? Because yeah. you'd be probably not getting the gear ratios that it should have. Yep. It's it's to pass pass the regulation. Yep. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a perfect storm, isn't it? It going is a perfect storm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so that, that brings us to, um, we'll call it new vantage, but current yeah. vantage. Does it have a designation? You know, uh, look, I think Aston Martin with their naming, you, you do get a bit, when somebody says V8 vantage or vantage, you yeah. think, well, hang on, which one are you talking about? So does the V8 va- current vantage, does it have a designation? How, how can we identify it from the previous one? Do we just say new vantage? Do you know what? Currently, that's the designation. That's the kind of... It probably needs a designation. That would be really handy for all of us, well, I think. Probably but, like Vanquish, Generation 1, Generation 2, yes. isn't it? Yeah. Yes, I think that's fair. Um, and, of course, this was a car that was launched... As auto only, so Absolutely. as opposed to the previous model, which was manual first and then sport shift came later. Um, current model was um, introduced in two thousand eighteen, and then it was a couple of years, eighteen months before the manual gearbox was was made available, and it was launched as Advantage AMR first of all. That's right, and well, quite a considerable price uplift was it? it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, exactly right. So it was a premium priced car. Higher spec, they made 200 um, in total. Yeah. And. Um, well, that's quite reasonable. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was quite popular. It, it, but it was always going to be the case that it became a standard option in the range thereafter. So after right. the launch of, of our AMR, and once it all sold, then like, you could. Like just, the first edition, which seems to be the thing these days. You got it. Yeah, yeah. exactly that. Um, then it became just a box you could tick and you were spec advantage. And actually, there was. First of all, a sizable price advantage to ordering a manual. So it was £6,000 less than an auto. Well, that's really not insignificant. So £6,000 less. Not only that, a chunk of time and effort went into engineering the, the manual gear. And it's everything from, um, first of all, it had instead of auto has an e-diff, this has got a full mechanical um, limited slip diff, they changed the springs, dampers, anti-roll bars. They even changed the um, the brake pedal modulation and the placing of the, the pedals just so that when you're on the brakes and you need to flip the throttle to rev match, you don't, they're not overly sensitive. You can just, you can just do it perfectly. I mean, th- there's been a load of attention to detail 
and then the seven speed manual gearbox going in saved 95 kilograms over the autumn that's 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 a slim line person it, yeah it, it's a is it uh, uh, I'm trying to think of my weight. Uh, no, it's not me. It's a similar line person. Yes. It, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's um, so I, I like it. To, it's a bigger weight saving than if you if you bought a Ferrari um, four eight eight versus a Pista lightweight. This is more of a lightweight than mm. that, that difference. So, so um, there's quite a few other changes. Yeah, and then all the t- you've obviously got new centre console, new gear lever. Yes, it still had AM shift. Um, this car needed crash testing, emissions, or so you know. The commitment to building a manual would have been significant. Oh, you begin to wonder about the business case behind it. It's dead right. So I, I, I think Aston delivered upon their promise to build a manual gearbox. Understandably. And they built a great car. Yeah. Again, I still feel it's a car that you drive up the road, and if you drove it for 10 minutes, you think, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure it's for me. You drive it for a couple of hours, and suddenly it clicks. Right. It's worth the effort. But now, it's interesting you say worth the effort. Yeah. Because uh, uh, before I came up, yeah. I, I, I tweeted that I was coming up here to talk to you. Mm-hmm. We were going to talk about uh, uh, manual gearboxes. And one of my followers, uh, Supercar Adventurer, yeah. uh, he said well, he's, he's got a new Vantage. Yes. And he said you have to get used to it. And he says, why is the gearbox so clunky? Is it a clunky gearbox? Uh, yeah, I think it is. It is. I, I, in fairness. But I, I think you have to adapt to your driving style so i.e. if I drove first time I drove that car first 10 minutes I was clunky <laughs> that, that's the problem but actually you know if I get into one now and I'm, I'm far more familiar with them I can execute smooth fast shifts I've had to work at that to get to that so point. you have to adapt definitely do you feel cus- uh, uh, customers these days clients these days there's a a need for perhaps the cars to adapt to them they should you know the they just want to get in and go. Do you, do you, well, do you I find think there's that? a phenomenal amount of products out there that are hugely flattering that do everything for you. Yes. And adapt to you rather than you adapt to them. And and technically, from an engineering point of view, that, that that's you know that's wonderful. That's very clever. But um, I, I don't want to get into a car necessarily that's just so easy. I'm not so much of a, a part of the process. But I can understand why pe- that would attract yeah. lots of people. So I, I, I don't make people wrong for getting irritated by these aspects. But for me, that's part of the journey. It, but interestingly, you know, in total, Aston would have made less than 400 manuals for the world. So that doesn't feel like a great investment to me. That they put a lot of weight, to, a, a lot of effort and time and money into creating a manual gearbox. And to answer the question, why is it clunky? Well, Aston have used an already established manual gearbox that, 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 that's been part of their range. They haven't started from scratch. They've done the right thing because the reason people haven't bought the car isn't because they're coming in and saying, I don't like it to drive. The reality is we didn't have the inquiries on. In my own personal experience, mm. phoning up and saying, I want to come and try that manual, people were just still going towards the auto gearbox because you know there's nothing to dislike about the ZF. It's just a brilliant gearbox. So... Um, I think even if they built a wonderfully slick, easy-to-use, conventional six-speed manual, let's say, yes, I don't think that would have been the difference. But that, but but I do understand that certain people will find it a bit notchy to begin with. But I, I think you, you work around that, and that's where we are. I can't buy a V8 manual 
brand new V8 Vantage off you now because no. that's, that's the end of it. Yes. Unless less Q department come along, which um, I'm, I'm sure they're quite happy to take someone's check. Yeah, we'll put a, we'll put a, a gearbox in for you. But as a core product range, end of year. And of course, we've got electrification coming up, which is going to kill the gearbox anyway, isn't it? The, the manual gearbox in any case. It, it, it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, don't, don't underestimate the cost of engineering because. I always call the Q department the could you just department because those are the questions they, they generally get asked that begin with could you just <laughs> and um, you know the cost of because we've had questions over the years oh I'd love a Zagato could, could, could you just put a manual gearbox in it well yeah I mean but yes but the, the cost of doing that is just eye watering I think is it Simon Lane who, yes. is, uh, who, who, who heads that I think I read in somewhere even some of the smallest changes by Q it's phenomenal. I think it's like, I've read something about the seatbelt webbing. Yep. If you wanted to change that, I think it just has to be type approved again. And the cost behind this is just phenomenal. And what sounds like a simple request, I mean, that maybe a gearbox isn't, but, but some that, yeah, you're fine with you. What, what sounds like a simple request, the moment you start looking into what's actually involved, I don't feel disappointed in Aston Martin removing the manual gearbox from the range. I think it makes absolute commercial sense from Probably their point too much when the new team came in saw too much red ink on the spreadsheet I, exactly that uh, and I think you know they have delivered here's a manual gearbox everyone who wants to buy it and, and, and ultimately no, the demand yeah, yeah exactly the demand yeah. hasn't been there so I, I don't think it's Aston failing the market I think it's the market saying yeah, voting with their feet actually what I think is, is probably going to cause the demand to steadily increase more than anything is actually I think one cars are becoming so capable and two becoming so fast whether they're electric or combustion I think we'll get to the point where we think do you know what Um, a thousand brake horsepower two thousand brake horsepower it's all a bit meaningless having something that's a bit more interactive as as, certainly as a weekend car probably will hold its appeal frankly for our daily cars I think manuals are are pretty much dead and buried long term yeah Um, but definitely it's recreational cars yeah I, I think there will always be an element of demand there where people want that Guy it's been an absolute delight thank you so much for your time thanks Jack well a brilliant interview there Gary and quite sad I think that the true manual gearbox with a stick in your hand is consigned to the history books but an interesting point there that the reason for that is not anything that's led by the manufacturer it's market forces it's what people are buying and what people are demanding that aston martin makes for them and that's the important point there but a brilliant insight there from hwm i say we spoke about the the end of the manual gearbox and tim cottenham uh, who i mentioned earlier uh, the registrar he did point out that manual gearboxes still exist what we are really talking about is the end of the third pedal and the gear stick uh, I think there's the sports shift, which through the flappy paddles uh, still operate a manual gearbox. But uh, when we refer to manual gearbox, we're still thinking of the good old stick and the third paddle. So, um, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Thank you, Guy. Well, don't forget as well, we'd like to hear from you if you have particular stories to share with us here on the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. We're always 
keen to hear from you if you have a period of long ownership perhaps or a particular experience you'd like to share perhaps you've worked around aston martin or worked with aston martin we'd like to hear from you it's really easy to get in touch simply go to the website astonmartinheritagepodcast.com click the contact button there and you can fill out the form get in touch with us and we'll be in touch with you to put you on this podcast but for episode four it's goodbye from me wayne scott And it's goodbye from me, Gary Taylor. See ya. The Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Subscribe and get new episodes delivered to your device automatically via astonmartinheritagepodcast.com.